obviously we're in different countries at the moment, but if we were meeting in person at a coffee shop for a fun conversation, what would your order be? Oh, at the moment, it's a caramel latte, occasionally with an extra shot, depending on like how busy my day is going to be. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. I like hot or iced? Mm, at the moment, hot because we've kind of, like we suddenly had got like very, very cold weather in the UK. So everyone just stopped drinking iced coffee like on the same day. So at the moment, like a regular hot caramel latte. Okay. Love it. That's very cozy. You can always learn so much about somebody just from their coffee order. I know more about you now already. Charlotte Atkinson, welcome to New to the Table. Oh, thank you. I'm so, so happy to be here. So excited to have you on. I would love for you to introduce yourself instead of listening to me read you (laughs) your bio. And the way that I ask people to introduce themselves is if a stranger comes up to you, you're at an event, you're wherever, and they go, what do you do? What do you tell them? Uh, I say I'm a film producer and a coach. And usually that's enough for them to be like, oh, cool. And then talk to someone else. (laughs) But if they ask more questions than I say, as a producer, I make films about dreamers daring to do things differently. And it means I can kind of encapsulate anything that I really want to in terms of projects. And then as a coach, I help writers, directors and actors as well, actually, really get their voice heard and stand out from the crowd so they can make their own films and then get on the right track to making their first feature, which is always exciting. So excited. Very casual. Very cool job. Just like, just, you know, chill. Like it's nothing big. (laughs) I think it's very, like, I really, really admire what you do. I think it's, it's so cool because you're doing the thing yourself and then you're also helping so many other people do in their own way. I really love that. Thank you. So today we're breaking away from the usual mold that have been the first five episodes of New to the Table And instead of asking the wonderful Charlotte about her backstory, which is wonderful, we're sure, we're going to instead ask Charlotte about her expertise in the industry. And this is obviously more UK-based. So if you're a listener in the US, there's going to be concepts that are universal, but there might also be some differences. And so we can point that out as we go of what is definitely UK-specific or what is just like a universal concept. Mm -hmm. And specifically, we're going to be talking about making your own short film and producing your own work because producing your own work is such an important concept early on in your career instead of waiting for permission from somebody else. But as you described to me, Charlotte, in an email, so many people are told to pick up the camera, shoot it, put the big charges on their credit card and just figure it out from there in that sense, which as you put it is terrible advice and sets a lot of people up to fail. (laughs) Making a short film is no easy task. So whatever stage you might be in, listener, with your short film, whether you're thinking about making one, whether you have one made already and now you're looking at festivals and distributing it, Charlotte has what you need. And she's going to share with us some insight of producing your own work and specifically producing your own short film. Do you want to add anything on Charlotte before we dive into it? I don't think so. I think the only thing is that I will specify, like whether it's UK based, whether it's US based. So I'm hoping that people listening won't feel like they're left wondering whether yeah. it will apply to them or whether it apply to someone else, but that would be the only thing to add. Yeah, I'll ask too, because 
coming from a U.S. perspective and as somebody who like I would love to get into it and make my own short film someday. I don't have an idea yet for one, but I know it's something I'd love to do. I'll I'll make sure to be like, if we were doing this in the U.S., would this hold true still? So first topic that we want to dive into is how short films get made and how that differs from feature films. Yes, I love this because a lot of people treat the stages of making a short film as one big overall get your camera get everyone there go done and actually it's a lot more kind of stage or process based and the great thing about short films is you can literally make them any way that you want to like there are there are very few restrictions in the way that there are with feature films like if you were going through the process of financing a feature film you have to do everything from chain of title errors and emissions insurance all of this stuff the whole legal closing process will take you six weeks it's a very built-out process short films you can basically do it however you want to but the general stages that you get to kind of play around with are writing and creative development and then crewing casting getting all the people involved financing that's a fun thing because you can literally do it a hundred different ways if you really wanted to then you have pre-production which is where you're going to nail down all of the big important details make sure everyone turns up at the right time that sounds like a silly thing to have to check but trust me yeah (laughs) make sure you check then you have production then you have post-production then you have distribution And so the way that you go about each of those stages is actually entirely up to you. But the reason that I love that we kind of confirmed in that email chain of like, don't just pick up a camera and start shooting is because there is so much that can go into a short film and to kind of just blend all of those stages together, it becomes very stressful and it means you probably don't end up with a very good film. And I think especially with short films, there's so much you can get in terms of favors and goodwill. And if you aren't really careful with that, with the planning of the whole thing, then you can find that you either take things for granted or you just miss out, frankly, Mm -hmm. on a lot of good things. So in terms of how they actually get made, the biggest part of that process is usually finding a producer and then finding the funding. Mm -hmm. And that's the bit that can vary depending on how you want to do it. And those also feel like the scariest parts of the process to me, because it feels like those are the parts of the process where depending on who you are as a filmmaker requires the most putting yourself out there-ness to try mm-hmm. and connect with somebody, a collaborator to help produce this film. You have to believe in your film enough to pitch it to somebody else, to hope that they also believe in it enough to give their time and energy to it. And then funding, I mean, that's a whole other ball game of like, that could be a whole other episode almost of yeah. asking people for money and getting funding for your for your work too which also requires a huge amount of belief in yourself which at the start of your career also if you've never made a short film before and if you're trying it out is a very hard thing to feel sometimes yeah it's a really funny one because especially in like the writing the planning stages all of that is very almost insular like you can do it as just one person if you really wanted to But when it comes to actually telling people about your idea, first of all, you have to learn the language that producers and potential investors speak, which is a whole thing in itself. And then you also have this issue where, especially if you're a creative person, you really communicate through your films. You communicate how you see the world and what you want to say to the world through your film. 
And so figuring out how to communicate all of that before you've even made the film, that again feels like a whole other language that you're learning and a whole other skill to acquire. So I understand why it's so stressful and difficult for people because I could like give you the whole step-by-step process. And a lot of the time it still isn't enough because you have to be able to acquire that language or that confidence in that language in order to go and do that process. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And for people who might not know, What's the point of looking for a producer to attach to your short film? I love this question because I see so many people who are like, I just produced it myself with a spreadsheet. Yeah. And I'm like, what a fun way to devalue <laughs> producers. I'm not saying you can't do it by yourself. You absolutely can. But the point of a producer is literally to facilitate the creative vision and to facilitate everyone else's work. So what I really mean by that is it's my responsibility to set the budget, first of all, and the schedule that we're actually going to need to make this film. Mm. And that's even down to tiny things like making sure that makeup has more than 15 minutes. Because I've been in productions where someone, usually a man who doesn't do their own makeup every day, has set 15 minutes per actor in makeup. And I'm like, I can't even do my own makeup in 15 minutes. Like, what are they expecting? Especially not when you're about to put yourself on film. (laughs) And so it's tiny little things like that of setting the budget and the schedule and then getting literally every single thing that we will need for production. That's everything from public liability insurance to the right DOP to figuring out the festival strategy. As a producer, you're usually there from day one until day 1001, honestly. You you never really finish working on a short film. So the shortest answer is we manage the film whilst everyone else is being creative and doing their best creative work in that sense. Yeah, that seems like that's the biggest thing. If you want to self-produce, you just have to understand that you're taking on all of it. And it makes it a little bit harder to focus on just the creative vision of your film and like really dealing with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... it's kind of nice to have that level of control I think some people enjoy being completely in control of writing directing and producing but it's also not super fun if you're in the middle of production and you're trying to focus on like the creative side of things and people are asking you where they have to send a train ticket so they can invoice you right like travel expenses so it's kind of swings and roundabouts if you want to do everything on your own yeah Absolutely. And you've done a lot of other roles on a short film set. You've been first AD. You've been, can you list some of the other ones that you've done? Yes. I have done honestly a little bit of everything. I have been a production assistant. I've been a runner. I've been a first AD. I've been a third AD. I have been a location manager, location scout. Obviously I've produced my own things. I produced a radio show for a while. Like a, It's a very blended CV. This yeah. Yeah. And how are those roles different? Like if somebody walks onto a short film set for the first time, how is that going to be different? Again, from a feature, from television sets are also a whole other thing, but we'll focus on between feature and short film. What are the roles that are different on the short film? There's a lot more blending on a short film set, and it means that you can adapt the job based on the film's needs. With a feature film, it's kind of standard in terms of what each role will entail, I think the most variety that you'll get is probably as a production assistant or a runner where you can literally be doing everything from buying sandwiches to being an assistant to an actor. For example, you can have a very different job. But on a short film, because the budgets are smaller, the schedules are usually a lot more crammed, it means you can end up doing a whole variety of different things. As a first AD, you might do the schedule and the call sheets 
And then when you get to being on set, you're not only the first AD running the entire shoot to make sure everyone knows what they're doing, no one runs over schedule. You might also be doing things like actually going and buying lunches for everyone just because you didn't have the money for a runner. So that's the key difference for a lot of short film roles. It's a lot of doubling up. It's a lot of blending. It's a lot of adapting to specifically what this film needs. Yeah. I was on a short film set once where I wrote it and then I was also the first first AD and I was the scripty. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's the biggest one that blends is first AD and script supervisor. And I'm like the poor first AD on those jobs. (laughs) Obviously, also as the writer, it was a very natural thing for me to be like, I will be (laughs) scripty. I know the script. I wrote the script. But it was just funny because you, I constantly felt this literal switching of hats of going from keeping us on schedule as first AD to being like also this line you said it three different ways in the last three takes. So that was my blended short film experience. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's fun. It it, Honestly, I think the people that you shoot a short film with, because everybody is gathering together to get this done in however many days or even hours that you have to do this, I feel like you you stay friends with everybody afterwards for a while. You're either like enemies for life or you're friends for life. Right, you're either trauma bonded. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're like, I will never work with that person again. Pretty much. Yeah. In the most low budget, simple short film, what do you feel like are the absolute must have roles to have people fill on set? Ooh, aside from writer and director, obviously, and cast, sound recordist. Don't skimp on a sound recordist because you can forgive bad picture. It's it's more of like a human psychology thing, if anything, where we will put up with bad picture, but bad sound is almost like nails on a chalkboard. We actively avoid listening to it. Mm. So sound recordist is going to be a big one. Find a sound recordist with kit. You normally pay them a slightly higher daily rate because they're bringing their own kit with them. That will be the first thing. DOP, that will be a really good person to help you or help the director rather, especially if you are the writer director and you probably end up doing some of the runner jobs as well. Like it's a very blended situation. Get yourself a really good DOP who can figure out what it is that you want to do, figure out how to do that visually with the locations you have, the cameras and equipment that you have. Maybe one other person for the camera team just to save the DOP from with their hair falling out with stress. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's a gaffer, spark, grip, whatever you might need depending on the setup. First AD, again, don't miss this one. I was once on a shoot as a runner or a production assistant and I took it because it was filming in January and nothing films in January. Like this was Mm pre-COVID. No one would film in January because the light lasts all of eight hours if you were lucky. And so I took this job as a production assistant just for the sake of adding it to my CV. And they didn't have a first AD. They had two directors, no first AD. And I think they thought that because there were two directors, one of them would naturally just make sure like they would kind of take turns and make sure that the shoot moved along. Like, I don't know if they had like a specific set schedule, but you know, especially if you're like a really organized left brain sort of person, you sort of look at something and go, this is going to go really badly. And then (laughs) someone kind of just comes in and quietly organizes the whole thing. So I sort of just started first AD because it was a super small team and I knew that I could kind of coordinate everyone and make sure that we actually filmed the damn thing and the time that we had. So yeah, it was a really fun, slightly chaotic shoot, but yeah, don't skip on a first AD 
because otherwise you find that everyone kind of runs to their own time and it's not always the best option and then after that you probably want a good makeup artist depending on what your film needs never underestimate what people actually look like on camera I think that's a really fun thing we're also used to zoom at the moment and the filter that zoom automatically has so depending on what your film needs makeup maybe wardrobe you maybe don't need wardrobe but if you're going for something that has a lot of emphasis on the costume again this is where you adapt it to the film right and I would say last one would be a runner depending on what else you've picked. Just someone who can go make tea for everyone, who can go pick up sandwiches, like whatever else you need, run all of these little errands so you don't have to leave. Also for the sake of the story too, to have somebody who can, there's always going to be last minute things that Mm -hmm. even if you're a very organized person slipped your mind and you're there on set and you're like, I wish I could be in two places at once right now. That's what you're running for. Even silly things like, can you just run downstairs and pick up my phone because I need it to, to like check what we did last time? Yeah. You just need a spare pair of hands who's excited to be there and ready to get on with anything. Yeah. So I'd also love to ask you, you run Our Daughter Productions, a production company, and I had seen on recently on social media that you guys had opened up submissions. You were like, send us your short film scripts. And how many did you say you got? You got like 600? Am I making that up? Um, no, no, 60. Okay, oh my God. <laughs> that would be way too many. I knew the six was there, but still 60 is a lot of scripts to receive in a short, you had to close the window like an, a week early, right? Yeah, we closed it. I hadn't really set like a firm deadline. And then everyone went nuts with sending us stuff, which I very much appreciate it because we're a small production company. It's yeah, it's a big deal for people to notice stuff and that we like see our Instagram and notice that we have submissions open so I was really excited to receive that many but we kind of have capacity for realistically 80 to 100 scripts maybe in terms of what we can accurately review and really dedicate our time to and so we closed the window a week earlier than I had planned just because we couldn't really take any more with the quantity that we were getting and the time that we were getting them. And in, in the receiving of everything, I have been loving, you're, you're like, okay, we've just read through so many scripts. Here's our feedback. Here's what producers are looking for. Here's what we're not looking for. And it's such a great thing to read. It's been so insightful. And so I love that, that content. And could you also share sort of now based on this recent experience of receiving so many scripts in a short time of what stood out to you and as a producer, like how somebody who has the script can make their idea and their pitch to you feel more attractive. Yeah, it was really funny, actually. I wasn't expecting to have such similar feedback for so many scripts. But Mm -hmm. I think what tends to happen when you read a lot of scripts in short succession, you do see sort of trends or patterns of things. And I think that is, that's not necessarily like a writer's fault. It's simply because the nature of making a short film is really difficult Like you have to create something out of nothing. You have to build the entire world. You have to create and establish characters that the audience want to root for. You have to create the entire arc for that character. And you have to execute all of that in 15 minutes or less, generally speaking. Like it's an art form. And I think it's really irritating when a lot of people write short films off as just like an extracurricular thing that you might do. And I'm like, no, this is a training ground for a lot of people for this reason. It really hones your storytelling skills. And the thing that I noticed with a lot of scripts is sometimes the concept is just too big for a short film. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. 
Like if this concept is going to work better as a pilot episode for something or as a feature film, that's fine. Let it be that. You don't have to have like a proof of concept short film version. But that, like the concept overwhelming the format, that was one big piece of feedback that I had on everything. In terms of pitching in general, I would say get really, really clear on why this script should be made now. That's going to be a big question that you can help producer answer. We're not going to say yes to a project if we don't know why it should be made now. Mm. I got some beautiful scripts that have won so many competitions and so many script awards. And I remember sharing them with my assistant being like, I want you to read these and see what you think of them because I don't want to bias you in any way, but see what you think. And she came back and we both said exactly the same thing which was that they are beautifully written. They are so lean, like there's no excess wasted time, dialogue, anything, anywhere. But there was no urgency. Like there was no clear reason why these films had to be made now. They Mm. could be made in like 15 years time and still be exactly the same script. And so the problem when you don't articulate why it should be made now is that a producer will go cool onto the next one. It doesn't matter how well crafted it is. There isn't the urgency there to Mm. get people excited about making it. Mm. And that then comes with a whole host of other problems. So figuring out why now is a really fun topic. And we shared a lot of content about that because it was a big question that people struggled with. But making sure the concept fits, making sure you know why now those are going to be like the two foundational benchmarks, whatever you want to call them, when you yeah. start with putting your script out into the world. I think it's also probably hard for a writer to think, I don't want my script to feel so, you don't want it to feel so timely where it mm. could feel outdated a year from now. But you also don't, like you said before, there has to be a sense of urgency to make this film right now and get a whole team of people besides yourself mm. on board to make it right now so there's definitely a balance to be struck between those two two sides of the the spectrum it does come with its own like funny uncanny ability to figure out what people are going to want to watch in six to 12 months time right once you sort of get into that skill you like you don't have to learn it again and you know it's fine but it is definitely a weird way of looking at the world of trying to preempt what people are going to want to watch in a year's time (laughs) yeah you don't really get to live in the present as a filmmaker no You have to be so really up to date on the zeitgeist of what's around you while also zooming out and looking at at trends. And there's some people that are better at at that zoomed out bird's eye view and others that are more all the way zoomed in. I tend to be an all the way zoomed in person. I know that for myself. I can kind of look at a script and go like very, very like as zoomed out as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun because a lot of filmmakers are like you. They're very zoomed in, especially when we live and breathe these ideas and these characters. You need someone to balance that you need someone to say okay cool I love that you know what the color palette is and why but I need to know like (laughs) so I know like who like which group of people are going to love this which group of people are going to connect with this story and then how do we reach them because that's going to set like the distribution budget for example so you definitely need a balance of both of them it's very difficult to be both absolutely not at the same time but even to be both just to be able to switch between one another that again is another really really difficult skill for people to try and master yeah and that's another give yourself grace moment of if you're not good at that like 
that is okay. And that's why you reach out to a producer. And that's why you get feedback from other perspectives on your work and your script. And it's not like you have to do all those things all at once. It's part of collaborating. We don't ever make a film just by yourself, right? Everybody brings something different to the table. And I felt so called out by you just now because when you're like, okay, but why the color palette or whatever? I'm so like, I'll create a whole Pinterest board of a TV series before I've even written a single word. It's lovely, but it doesn't translate to anything on the page. <laughs> exactly. I'm so guilty of that. I'm, I'm called out. <laughs> no, it's fair enough, especially when I'm coaching people and we really streamline their whole creative process because it's very easy to get distracted or to lose ideas or whatever. And I want to make sure that people don't end up essentially doing what I did, which is where I would have an idea. And it was the best thing ever. Not even exaggerating. It was incredible. And I'd scribble it down in a notebook mm-hmm. and I'd leave like 10 blank pages so I could come back to it and develop it when I had more time or whatever. And then I would just forget about the idea. And then I would go back to it or remember it eventually and have no idea what this thing was, like from my scribbles. I could not tell you like what the story was, who the character was, like nothing. And I have notebooks with like chunks of blank pages that I've never gone back to. And so that was a big part of when I was like building out my coaching program is making sure people don't do that. There are generally three types of creative people. Some are visually led, which it sounds like you are, because a big part of your creative process will be the Pinterest board. And location scouting is another, like one of your favorite bits of things. Some people are more character led or story led. And so those are the notebook people. They have to scribble every single thing down and then they feel like they've got a clear sense of it and they can build the story off of that. Other people are research-based. That's more for documentary, but especially mm. if there are filmmakers who like to create short films based on real life or true stories, it'll be the research rabbit holes that mm. they have their time on before they go, yeah, I've got it. Now we can get on with it. Some very like weird Google search histories. <laughs> Those are the ones like crazy. You <laughs> That's it's so helpful too that you just broke that down because I think that helps if you know that about yourself to go, okay, this is this is how I how I lead into a project. And so then I have to be really conscious of actually putting my visuals into action or putting my research into action or putting my scribbles into action, whichever one of those three that you are. So moving on to a bit about funding. First off, I just want to say that you have an amazing digital product product, the complete guide to short film financing. So if you're in the UK and you're more interested in this, I would definitely recommend you to head towards Our Daughter Productions, and I'll link it in the description of the episode. But we'll also talk a little bit about it right now. Funding and festival distribution strategy are kind of like the two things we have left to talk about when it comes to looking at all the stages of your short film. So Mm -hmm. for you, when does funding come in of a short film's process? If you're the producer, it's the very first thing that you're thinking about. Yeah. Like you have this running question in your mind of where the hell can I get any money for this? It's the main thing. Because regardless of whether you're in the UK or the US, there's always the expectation that the film will not make any money ever at all. It's definitely possible for a short film to make money, but rarely will it make enough money that it makes its entire budget back and breaks even and then gets to the point of making a profit. So you have to be much more realistic, I would say, about funding in general. And especially because so many people spent most of the pandemic writing, like all of these filmmakers who were doing a lot of runner and PA jobs just to be in the industry, they finally had time to go back to why they wanted to get into the industry in the first place. 
And so they spent it writing, developing ideas, finishing projects. And so now there is so much more competition than there ever, ever was before with people wanting money for short films. It used to be that you could maybe get like at least 80% of your budget from one funding source. Now it's more like 10% from here, 20% from there. It's very patchwork quilt style. Some people get a little bit disheartened by that. And then other people are like, oh, that makes it so much better because I've only got like a thousand pounds, my 10,000 pound short film. But now I know that's completely normal. And I feel much more excited to go and get like the next thousand pounds. So in terms of for creative people, when you start thinking about funding, that's normally when you focus on producers and having conversations with them. But I think all of the markers for where you could get funding from, they live in the script itself. They live Mm -hmm. in the themes. They live in the characters. And that's where you start to go, oh, maybe this person would be interested or this organization. Producers have that kind of back knowledge because we're always building this mental address book of places that uh, give money to making short films. But if you're not a producer, don't pressure yourself to build that mental address book because it takes a very, very long time. And the finance guide actually came out of me wanting to update my mental address book with everything that was still going in the midst of the pandemic, everything that had shut down permanently, everything that was on hiatus. And so I sent my very lovely long-suffering assistant, Sophie, on this whole research mission to go and find everything. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could just put all of this information into an ebook for people? Five months later, we finally finished the thing. It became a much, much bigger project just with the craziness of the pandemic and dealing with all of that and then wanting to put in all of this kind of mental info that I had like the step-by-step plans Mm -hmm. because I know like how you set up a crowdfunding campaign and I know like what the six months before you launch are going to look like but it kind of dawned on me that not everyone knows those steps even though it feels like complete common sense to me because because I've done it for so long you know and helped so many people creating that whole step-by-step process putting all of that into an ebook we finally finished it about five months later (laughs) (laughs) well that's a lot it's a lot you said before short films tend to they're not exactly known for return on investment of making your whole budget back and then some so when it comes to fundraising for it it can feel I guess the best word is just a bit awkward at moments ask people for money and how do you as the producer when you're going about funding and raising funds how do you sort of make that work mentally yeah You have to know what they're getting in return. In feature film land, that's not a real land, but in feature (laughs) film land, everyone has a vague expectation that they will make money based on their investment. And that's usually written into their contract or any kind of legal document you have set up with them. They know how much they're expecting to make based on where they fit in the recoupment waterfall. Like it's very structured, it's very legally organized. With short films, you have to ask yourself, okay, I'm not going to give them a single penny or a single cent of this money back ever again, realistically. So what can I give them instead? What do they need? What's going to be of the most value to them? Sometimes they have like a child or a niece or nephew or something who wants to get into the film industry. Cool. I will give them a role in the film. And that person will give me money for the film. And it sounds a little bit sleazy, but that's how plenty of films get funded a lot of the time. And sometimes it means that whoever it is you get involved in the film is honestly terrible. (laughs) 
and you kind of have to work around that that's occasionally though they're not always completely terrible but that like that's a form of value for some people that's a good enough reason to invest money in it sometimes it helps with things like brand awareness and they like to be seen supporting creative projects if you're filming in like quite a tight-knit community, if that's one of your big locations, look at local businesses there that like to support the community event. You know, if your film is going to benefit the community by opening up roles for local people, for example, mm-hmm. having that company's name as a sponsor on your film with all of the film marketing you might do in the local area, that again is another form of value for people. So that tends to take out any of the awkwardness of it. When you yeah. can be up front and say, what do you want to get out of this? What can we give you as a short film production that you wouldn't normally get on a day-to-day basis? For a lot of people, filming is very glamorous. We know that it is in no way glamorous, but they think it's glamorous. And so see what you can actually give them. You know, don't start with that perspective of, oh, we're just a short film. We don't have anything. We can't offer anything. You will be surprised how much people will love to get involved with your film. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great way of putting it. Yeah. I will say that the US is a lot more open to short film funding. The UK, we have a few big regional organizations which are very competitive because everyone knows about them, so everyone submits to them. And then you have what I call pop-up funds. And these are usually launched with a specific mission in mind of funding a female filmmaker or funding a female director's first film, that kind of thing. And they usually spring up from bigger organizations like the Bumble dating app. They had a female film fund open a few years ago. They ran it for one year, I think. Yeah, one or two years. And then they closed the fund and then you have to like update your mental address book to say oh that doesn't run anymore that's one opportunity gone then you also have to look out for the next pop-up funds that are coming up the other issue is that it's great that they have these specific missions for female filmmakers or minority filmmakers in general whatever their kind of tagline is but it also means you find yourself kind of being labeled before you've even done anything which I know is often a almost uncomfortable feeling for some people whereas in the US you have so many film funding opportunities it may not feel like it if you're listening from the US and sitting with a script that you've been trying to get started but in doing all of this research for the film financing guide all of these film funds we found were in the US and they run for a lot longer than a lot of the pop-up funds in the UK so it does take a fair bit of googling and researching and that kind of thing but in general, it's a lot more open because I think in the US, you guys really understand the forward value that you have when you invest in something like that, which does make it a lot easier to be upfront and say, okay, what do you guys want? What Mm. do you want to achieve? What targets do you have? Whether it's a local business, an arts council, a community in general, all of that kind of thing, you can just go in and be a bit more open with what value you can actually give them. Yeah. Yeah, true. I didn't didn't think about that. Obviously, I haven't spent a whole lot of time in the UK. So that's so interesting. And I'm sure sometimes you also feel limited too when you when you accept a a super specific grant or a super Mm -hmm. specific entry into something, it it can feel like all of a sudden, well, now I have to do one certain thing with this project versus having your own concept and your own idea and then figuring out how to make that work for the story Mm -hmm. leading from the story. So it is kind of a a catch 22, right? They're trying to be helpful. But it it doesn't always feel that way sometimes. Yeah, I think there is this understanding in the UK that short films are just stepping stones, mm-hmm. which I wish more people understood was just not true. Like, yes, it can help you make your next film, 
but that doesn't really work so much anymore. It's not like you make one film and everyone goes, oh, I see all of your talent. Here is a bunch of money to go make your first video. Like, it just doesn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the US, there's much more of an attitude of understanding the value just of a short film itself without the pressure for it to be like the stepping stone for the director, for example. I kind of equate it in my head to short stories. Like nobody would really look at a short story that's beautifully crafted and well done and think, well, that's just before they write the novel. Because it's like, no, that's the story. There it is. It's beautiful. And that's Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I love that analogy because I always feel like I'm whining a little bit when I say like, I wish people understood the value of short films, but that's such a beautiful way of explaining it that doesn't sound whiny. (laughs) (laughs) People love short stories and we use short stories all the time, but short films don't always have the same depending on who you are, like gravitas to them in the industry. Like you said, it's always shoot the short film as a proof of concept for a feature that you want to make, or instead of just going for the pilot and letting your concept lead and figuring out what form is best for it, it is used as a stepping stone, like you said. But another thing that it's great for as a fun segue is to talk about festivals, the festival circuit. Can you talk a little bit about that from a producer's perspective? Yes, if there is one thing that I will happily beg filmmakers for, it's to prepare festivals or just distribution strategy in general before you go into production. That's another thing for me as a producer. I have to know where you want this film to go. Like if you're the writer or director or both, do you want this to go to festivals so that it can kind of establish you or continue to establish you as a filmmaker and you really want that awareness and those laurels and those screenings? Do you want to go to festival as like a test run to see which audiences really connect with it before you launch it online? Like figure out what you really want that film to do for you and figure out where that film actually needs to go in order to reach the right audience. Don't just go to festivals because it's what everyone else does and it sounds cool, right? Like it's a really good way to lose a lot of money because it is almost like playing a lottery or gambling almost. If you go into festivals with no clear strategy and you just go in with a bunch of money, you're going to lose a bunch of money and maybe not get much out of it in return. So preparing it beforehand, it means everyone is on the same page with where this film is going to go afterwards. And it also means that when you get to post-production and you're really tired (laughs) and you're kind of recovering from usually a very hectic shoot, because that's what short film shoots are usually like, it means you don't have that added pressure of going, oh God, now we have to figure out what we're going to do with this thing. Like have the plan already done. Festivals in general, they can be amazing for establishing you and establishing your film, but they do cost money. Never be under the assumption that you can just have like a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars to put into festivals and call it quits. At the moment, you probably need about 600 pounds. So I would say like $750 for festival submissions to last you for about a year realistically and some people are like wow seriously and I'm like well like we can do the maths if we want to figure out like what is the average submission fee somewhere between 10 and 20 pounds or dollars all right say you want to be in one festival every single month and you know that your acceptance rate is maybe going to be 50 percent as like a nice average cool you know that you have to be submitting to at least two festivals every single month so for a year that's going to be 24 festivals times 20 pounds or 20 dollars if you've got a like it racks up very quickly we're making right for everyone maths so 600 pounds 750 dollars that's going to be your rough submission fee and then you need something for strategy if you've been to a ton of festivals before you can maybe get away with doing your own strategy 
But if you haven't, or if you have a film that's like a little bit niche or just a little bit different, you're going to want to take it to a festival strategist so they can say, cool, this is a great film. These are all the festivals that are going to love this film. Here is the whole plan for submitting to them. Here are some discount codes that we have. Mm. That will make your life a whole lot easier in general. I always work with uh, Rebecca Smith, the film festival doctor. She's now based in the US. She's based in Dallas, I think, currently. And so she works with everyone, literally everywhere on the planet. And she is one of the loveliest people in the industry. And she is always really like straight to the point, which I appreciate when you're working with someone on a film for them to go, okay, this is what it's realistically going to achieve. Let's do this. A lot of people want to start with like Oscar qualifying festivals just because they're Oscar qualifying. Please don't do that. (laughs) Please don't apply to festivals just because they sound really cool. If you have no idea if they like your film or not. So there is my like mini rant about festivals. (laughs) Over. (laughs) It's really helpful. I mean, at first for a while, I didn't even realize that you had to pay to get into festivals. I was like, you can just enter, right? Like I feel like (laughs) the word festival is very misleading. It gives us like sense of like it's a festival everybody come in and like show us your work and it's it's very much you know there's there's barriers of entry to everything of of all of these Mm -hmm. these stages of a short film project and I'm gonna be so so honest with you right now because maybe it'll make a listener feel better if they also didn't know I didn't know that festival strategist was like a job like I didn't know that 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 was a separate thing before this conversation I fully without doing any prior research to what I knew before we started this conversation I would have assumed that it's something that the producer does I mean the producer can definitely do it but there are I mean I don't even want to try and estimate how many festivals there are in the world yeah there's no real way of knowing what they like to screen what they look for, who their general audience is. Like there's no way you can know that for more than a hundred festivals at a time. And so that's where you have people like Rebecca who like it's their full-time job to build relationships with these festivals, look at what they're screening, look at what they screened last year, figure all of those things out and then say, cool, how does your film fit into what they are likely programming this year? And again, because they build relationships with these people, it means sometimes there are discount codes, which ends up saving you money. We save like a good chunk of money using discount codes on one of our films. And what was actually really interesting was that we had about five festivals for that film that the director, the writer-director wanted to submit to because she knew people who ran that festival. And they said, oh, yeah, we'd love to see your film. And I mentioned all of these festivals to Rebecca. And she said, based on what I know about them, I don't think this is the film for them. Like you can submit anywhere if they said like they'd want to see it, but I don't like I haven't included them in your strategy for a reason. I don't think they would be that interested. We submitted to all five anyway, because again, like the writer director knew people and had they'd asked for it. We got rejected from all five of them. <laughs> and we lost like a hundred pounds on all of these submissions, wow. even though like we knew people and we thought that was gonna be like our in with the festival. And so it was just, it was really interesting seeing how you really have to focus on the tastes of the festival as a whole, rather than just the people that you know on the team. And that is something that takes a lot of time and research to figure out, right? So that makes a lot of sense. I feel incredibly silly that I didn't know that a festival strategist was. A lot of people don't know that. So it's like, it's not just you, I promise. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was, I've I've been a festival judge once this year and it's so interesting seeing the other side of it, Hmm. seeing just like the variety of films 
I only got sent the films that were in consideration for an award. So I didn't see everything that was submitted. But you do start start to see the pattern very quickly. You go, oh, they're looking for really well-established characters and deeper meanings. That's their whole, like, thing. Mm. And you see very quickly how that would differ from any other festival on the planet. So it's definitely not a silly thing to not realize because it is, once you get into it, it's a very big world and it's much bigger than you first think it might be. But yeah, get a festival strategist. They are worth every penny that you will send them. And then beyond festivals, there can be distribution for short films. Let's talk about that really quick too. Yeah, again, it totally depends on your film. Like who is really going to connect with this film? And don't just say like 18 to 45 year olds, which it tends to be like most people's stock answer. If I say like, who's the audience for this? They panic and then go, yeah, like 18 to 45 year olds. And I'm like, okay, please tell me about an 18 year old that is like a 45 year old. I would really love to meet that person. (laughs) How are you finding this kind of cross section? No, like you have to really understand who's going to connect with it. And sometimes that isn't based on demographic. That isn't based on age or location or gender. Sometimes it's much more of a psychographic. It's based on experience or values. When you can figure out that, it means you can then work out where that film should go. If you know that you have like quite a strong social impact film, for example, like it's shedding light on a societal issue, uh, it's sharing a perspective we haven't seen before, or it's kind of challenging or upending a traditionally held perspective, Mm -hmm. that is what I would deem a social impact film. And it will do spectacularly well if you share it to Facebook, put it on YouTube, share it to Facebook and watch everyone feel like they're doing something really good and get that little hit of dopamine when they share that video to their audience. Right. And then from their audience, which is basically just their friends list. But for <laughs> us as filmmakers, it's an audience. Yeah. It just it will get reshared and reshared and reshared. And the best example I've ever seen of this is a short film called Removed. Removed Capital R, Capital M. It was made years and years and years ago. Go and look how many millions of views it has on YouTube because it was shared so many times on Facebook. That's where I first saw it. So many people resonated with it. It's about this little girl going from foster home to foster home. The last time I checked, it was on like 7.8 million views. So when we talk about distribution, go where your audience is. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that, really. I really love talking about these concepts because I think that when you're in the thick of it, of making your short film or of thinking and looking ahead of all of the stages that come of you, Talking about it now, some of it can feel obvious. You're like, well, yeah, you should go where your audience is. And yeah, you need somebody to help you with festivals. And like all all of the other things that we've just discussed, like in the past hour, it can feel obvious. But the thing is, is it's, it's not as always obvious in your brain when you're looking down the line of producing your own work. And I think that's why it's wonderful that there's content like yours out there that people can always come back to to remind themselves okay, don't need to overcomplicate this. This this is what Charlotte tells me to do. <laughs> I'm going to do what Charlotte tells me. You know, I've learned a lot in this conversation already. And so I just hope that it feels the same for the listener. Yeah, I'm so glad that we did this because this addresses pretty much all of the main questions that I get asked. Yeah. And I think especially like you need someone with more of that zoomed out perspective that we were talking about. And I... I think when you have someone, even if it's just like a podcast that you're listening to like this, when you have someone with that zoomed out perspective that you can kind of apply to your own film, that's yeah. where like all the light bulbs go on. 
Yeah. Because especially if you then, you know, if you've been thinking about festivals and then you realize you need a festival strategist and you know that it's going to cost you £600 plus however much for the strategist, you might be looking at like £1,500, $1,800 realistically. You might then go, oh, I don't have that kind of money. Um, and then you hear that you can put it on YouTube and share it to Facebook and that will cost you approximately nothing. And yeah. that might be the very best thing for your film. That's where you go, oh, cool, another perspective, like another opportunity or option that I can explore and pick what genuinely is best for my film. Yeah, That is kind of the root of everything. Like seeing what you can get with that zoomed out perspective or the opportunities that you can find with that zoomed out perspective is always so fun to watch. Yeah, I think that's the main through line of, of, of everything now that I'm sort of thinking back of everything that we just discussed is one, zooming out and realizing if you're good at zooming out or not. Mm-hmm. And two, to just let the, the story lead, right? The whole point of making the short film is whatever story you're trying to tell at the end of the day. Like all of the other details have to fall under the story, have to serve the story. It's not always to try and go and get awards at festivals. It's not just... I mean, it takes so much work and energy to put into a short film. I don't know why you would make it just to say that you did it or whatever, right? But it it all comes back to the through line is really what story you're trying to tell and figuring out how everything else can serve the story. So I think that's also the biggest takeaway that I've been reminded of of just this conversation is why why else would you make a short film? <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite thing. Sometimes people say like, what do you do when you have disagreements with people you work with? And I go, well, I don't really have disagreements with people that I work with because we all understand from day one that we're there for the good of the film. And when you have that in mind, it really does limit your options in the best way rather than it being like this camera will be cool or this technique will be cool or this location. Like you then narrow all of those things that would definitely be very cool, but you narrow it down to what's actually best for the film. And then the whole plan kind of just becomes clear. Yeah. And then, like if you have that zoomed out perspective, it's really fun to do and it's easy. If you don't have that zoomed out perspective, it's okay. Go find someone that does. Go find a producer that has that and will help you. Yeah. So to do some fun like wrap up questions, we we always love to end new to the table with some speed round things. So I have three three questions. I'll shoot the first one at you. What was the last thing that you watched on TV? Raise an at me. Yeah, just I don't, <laughs> don't one season. It. I recently finished all 19 seasons for the first time and I was so proud because I didn't let myself go back and watch any previous episodes whilst I was just doing that first run. So I finished the very last episode and thought, hey, let me just go back and watch the very first episode for fun. And now I'm halfway through season three. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think I'll ever leave. (laughs) Usually the answer is Grey's Anatomy or Doctor Who. Those are the two worlds that I don't really leave at the moment. Those are solid. Those are solid, solid answers. <laughs> I I personally made it. I made it to season six of Grey's Anatomy and I loved the show. I am just such like a, I cannot watch skin get pierced by things on screen. And so I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, I can't watch the surgery scenes anymore. It's, it really got to me. Yeah, that's, the, I tend to do like crosswords during surgery scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll watch it in the corner of my screen. And so I don't, like, I can hear what's going on, but I don't have to see all of like the blood and guts. I'm watching this, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's my way through. <laughs> Next speed round question is, what was the last book that you read? The last book that I finish was their finest I'm one of those weirdos that will read like five books at the same time and have no difficulty jumping between them 
Me too. And so the last book that I finished was originally published. I love this story, actually. It was originally published as their finest hour and a half. It's about a group of people making a feature film during World War II. Okay. And it's kind of like a propaganda film. But they want to make it something like a, they want to make it better. They want to make it more than just like telling people that Britain's going to win or whatever. And I loved it because I saw the film and loved the film. And then I finally found the book just in a random book swap place and loved it. And it was originally published their finest hour and a half. And they couldn't name the film that because the film was just under two hours long. <laughs> and I just, I had that at Lionsgate and they were like, yeah, we had to rename it because we couldn't call it their finest hour and a half when the film was almost two hours. So that was the last book that I finished. And I was so glad to find it. My last speedrun question, our always last question on this podcast is if you could tell a younger version of yourself one thing what would it be Uh, I would say you don't have to do everything immediately that would probably be my big thing because when I first got into the industry my goal was to get 10 credits in my first year and I'd done it by September and then I got a full-time job at a corporate commercial production company And I carried on doing jobs on the side. Like I was a location manager, location scout. I did some first AD jobs on my days off. I was producing a radio show, like a whole entire radio show whilst I was working nine till six. And I I knew that was a short contract anyway. I think I had that job for four months. So I think that's why I like kept pushing myself to keep doing jobs. But I would say like you don't have to do everything immediately would be the biggest thing because some of those experiences were really useful and every job you learn stuff. But you don't need to be waking up at 5 a.m. to work on your own projects and then go to the office and work for an entire day and then come home and work until midnight and then do that every single day of the week. That's silly. That would be my <laughs> advice. Like it's silly, calm down. <laughs> Don't need to do everything all at once, all the time. Mm -hmm. I love that advice because trusting the timing of everything is, is hard to do. And with social media, it can really feel like we're all in this race against each other, but everybody's got different timing and that's okay. Yeah, I think I was really, I have a lot of like parents and uncles and aunties and just like older relatives and family friends that are in not necessarily the film industry, but the creative industries. And so everything I heard from them was like, you've got to get your foot in the door. And once you're there, you can't ever quit. Like you have to really stick it out. And I was so like, that was all the advice I had in my head was like, don't let go. Like you're in, don't let go. And I knew that I didn't really want to be in the commercial film space. And so I loved that job because it meant I got to move to London and I had like a regular paycheck and that was really cool and everything. But I was like, I'm in the indie, like indie film industry. Like don't let go. Like I can't stop for four months. And I think that's honestly just not true. Realistically. And it's probably quite damaging to hear. And I just think the way that younger generations work now is honestly inspiring. You see all these kids who don't put up with anything in the way that we used to. And I love that. I'm so glad that they're like, this is silly. Like, we don't need to do this because no one told me that. And I love that they don't even have to be told that now. They just know that. And so, yeah, that would be the thing. Like, I wish that I had been told. It's yeah. silly. <laughs> a nice uplifting note you don't have to do everything immediately go take your rest and then you can figure out your short film after you've taken notes from this episode 
Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Charlotte, for being on New to the Table. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot. And I know that this will be helpful to so many people who are looking at the task of making their own work. And it's going to be feel daunting. And hopefully this can make it feel a little less daunting. And I'm going to include all of Charlotte's links in the episode description. And obviously we'll be posting about it and tagging you in our social medias if people want to follow your content because it's amazing content and it's so helpful. That is all for today. Thank you so, so much, Charlotte. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased that we got to do this. Yeah, me too. We finally met after being like online buddies for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just so pleased because I think everyone should have the chance to make a short film if they want to. It is the most amazing like career starter. And you shouldn't let, like even people that I'm going to turn their scripts down, like I hope that they go, cool, that's fine. And they don't, like they don't, they understand that it's not really up to anyone else to give you permission to make your film. Mm. So hopefully like with a little bit more insight or practicality or just seeing the perspective that we've talked about is enough for people to feel like they can actually go out and do it and they have that permission and they don't need to wait for somebody else to say you can do it. Like you can just go figure it out, get on with it, get started. Absolutely. 